the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. All right, welcome indeed. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420. The answer, it is eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, and we are ready to rock and or roll. It is the 17th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. Coming up in about a half an hour, we'll talk to Windsor, as in Jack. Jack Windsor from the Ohio Press Network has got a story for us to discuss. Did you know that one of the largest school districts in the state of Ohio now is embracing and forcing its teachers and staff to address children by whatever the hell the children tell them they want to be addressed by. Different names, different pronouns, different beings, different whatevers. That's what they're doing in Columbus City Schools. <clears throat> this isn't Olentangy. This isn't some small suburban district or something like that. This is Columbus City Schools, one of the largest districts in the state, Forcing all faculty, teachers, staff to call kids whatever the kids say they want to be called. What could possibly go wrong with this? So the grooming vibe is strong down in our state's capital. So we're going to talk to Jack about that. Along with, we'll get his thoughts on the presidential primary now that Trump won in such a record-breaking fashion in Iowa. What does that mean for New Hampshire? Should even should there even be a New Hampshire? Should there even be a South Carolina? Is it all over now? Uh, I'm stopping short of saying that, but as I said, you can make the argument to me. Yesterday, I even asked that question. Is it time to just coalesce around Trump and say, even if you were a, a DeSantis supporter, which I was and am, really, uh, first and foremost, uh, if you're a Haley supporter, if you're anybody else supporter, is it time now to say, okay, let's drop all of that and unite against the Democrats? It might be. You can make that case. You can make that case to me. You might convince me. Uh, in fact, I was even writing about this uh, on Facebook last night. I'll talk more about it in a minute. 
because I want to run down the rest of the uh, uh, guests here. But uh, Jack Windsor and I will discuss that at uh, 935. At 1010, Dr. Pierre Corey will join us. He's the author of War on Ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. He's going to talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci's 14 hours of deposition testimony in which uh, a lot of uh, previously believed but unprovable uh, facts emerged, such as they made up social distancing. No earthly idea where this, you know, the virus can't traverse more than six feet at a time. So if you say stay six feet away from the other person, you're going to be safe. They put those stupid footprints on the floor, on the ground, in stores. Remember those? When you're standing in line? Oh, there's your footprints. You can't go closer than that. You see, if you take a step forward, the virus will get you. You stay back here and the virus won't touch you. They made it all up. We're going to talk to Dr. Corey about that at 1010. At 1035, another doctor, this time Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, who is the founder of Do No Harm. Um, and it's an extraordinarily important organization. Do no harm, as you know, probably, is the first words in the uh, uh, well-known Hippocratic Oath that all doctors are supposed to start with, first, do no harm. Dr. Goldfarb is going to be talking about doctors who are completely abdicating uh, the, the, their responsibility in that, in that endeavor and doing harm to people, particularly to young children. So we're going to talk to him about Ohio's SAFE Act, which is banning doing that kind of harm to kids by way of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgical mangle, uh, surgical bodily mutilation procedures and so forth. So Jack Windsor, Dr. Pierre Corey, and Dr. Stanley Goldfarb are the guests today. You are, of course, the most important guest every day, 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Now, as I started the show yesterday, <clears throat> responding to the... Um, Iowa caucuses from uh, Monday night, I was late on getting to the Pledge of Allegiance, got into the second half hour of the show. I don't want to do that again. So, Patriots, why don't you go ahead and stand, face your flag, put your hand on your heart, and join us. If you are a believer in everything that this great, glorious republic stands for, put your hand on your heart proudly and say this pledge. If you don't believe it, if you believe in surrendering all of our liberties to globalists who are working right now at the World Economic Forum, to take away our national sovereignty and rights, something that is also being taken away from us by way of our southern border. If you believe in that, then act on it. Instead of standing proudly and virtue signaling, take a knee like the good little Marxist and anti-American that you are. For those of us who believe, however, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So I was just starting to say, you know, just a quick uh, follow-up on yesterday's conversation about the primaries and what happened with the Iowa caucus and uh, caucuses and whether or not, um, you know, that makes everything inevitable. And at what point do we have to embrace the inevitability of Trump as the nominee and then he gets, gets to pick his partner? Um, and I think that's coming very, very quickly. I feel as though New Hampshire is going to really cement that, but we'll see. Yesterday, there was a big event in which uh, Vivek Ramaswamy um, paired up with Donald Trump on stage in New Hampshire, and they had themselves a little hug fest, and they talked about how much they loved one another. 
Uh, the crowd chanted at President Trump, VP, 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 after Vivek got done speaking. President Trump's response was, quote, he's going to be working with us for a long time, end quote. Now, what does that mean? It means they are going to partner. Does that mean top and bottom of the ticket? Maybe. Or maybe it means he's going to be in my cabinet for a long time. Uh, Possible. Maybe he's going to be my chief of staff. Possible. Maybe he's going to be the secretary of the treasury. It's all possible. But what it does do, and this is what I wrote on Facebook last night, and I've been saying this for months, Vivek was never a serious candidate. He ran interference for President Trump. He was the wingman who was always going to be in line for VP or a prime cabinet spot in exchange for getting in the middle of this primary and cutting the legs off of Trump's top opponents. It's exactly what he did, and he did it very, very well because he's so incredibly talented and smart. The plan then culminates in the coveted, my full and total endorsement for president in 2028. I believe that is exactly what is happening here. That being said, Trump Ramaswamy 2024 might make for an extra long bumper sticker, but I will tell you, it does make for a hell of a ticket. Even if you are a DeSantis or a Haley fan first, you have to. And by the way, I was listening to a couple of other shows yesterday, and people were bouncing around and saying that there are a ton of DeSantis uh, and Haley supporters who say that if their person doesn't win, they're not supporting Trump. I don't know any of them. I haven't heard any of those people. I really haven't. I did hear a lot of uh, President Trump's strongest supporters saying if Trump doesn't get the nomination, that they will write him in or they will not vote. They will not support DeSantis or somebody else. I've heard that. I hope neither one of those two things is true. Because my, my response has always been DeSantis is my first choice. I think he's a phenomenal candidate. But I will always support the Republican nominee against anybody on that demon rat side of the, of the aisle. Trump Ramaswamy sounds very formidable trump haley less so i don't think she's legitimately a, a an answer to the conservative uh needs i think she is essentially there i don't want to call her a plant she's not a plant but i think she serves a lot of democrat interests more than she does conservative interests trump uh uh, uh carrie lake that has a lot of strong appeal. Trump, Christy Nome has a very, very strong appeal. Trump, Mike Pompeo would be a really interesting dynamic. Trump DeSantis is never going to be a thing. It was never going to be a thing. That was clear from the get-go. So if it's time to embrace the inevitability, it is, start to, it is time to start looking at the potential number twos. Trump said, by the way, a week ago that he knows who it's going to be, his running mate is going to be. Uh, and now he is on a stage with Vivek saying he is going to be working with us for a long time. That's a, that's a pretty strong indicator. Um, but I will ask you, what do you make of Trump Ramaswamy 2024? That hug fest last night and that adoring uh, crowd, um, you know, chanting VP, VP to President Trump about Ramaswamy and for Ramaswamy. Um, it, it is one that is very, very interesting and I think would be formidable. And would, oh my gosh, somebody brought this up on my page. Can you imagine a vice presidential debate between Vivek Ramaswamy and Kamala Harris? 
Can you imagine Giggles and Vivek, one of the smartest, I mean, one of the dumbest human beings ever to occupy a position in the White House as president or vice president, Kamala Harris, against one of the smartest people to ever come down the line as a candidate, I don't know, maybe literally ever down the line. Can you imagine the entertainment value of that? That would be something. So that's the extent of it for this morning on uh, uh, Trump or Amaswamy or Trump somebody uh, as to whether or not that inevitability. But that event last night really kind of opened a lot of eyes, and it did confirm what I said. I truly believe Vivek was never – how did we know this, by the way, that Vivek was never a serious candidate for president? Because I've said this for, for the last several months. If you're a serious candidate for president and you're losing to the, the, the front runner by 35 points, you're going to have to take a bite out of the front runner to catch up. But he never did. He only took bites out of DeSantis and Haley and Christie. He openly feuded with those people and criticized and condemned them. He never criticized one time President Trump on a policy, on a, on a, on a decision, on anything which meant that he was never trying to catch him. He was always there to take out and could and to uh, feud with and chop down those who were running against him. And now he's getting his reward. Like I said, perhaps the number two spot on the ticket, the ultimate reward will be that coveted full and total endorsement in 2028. So if you've got thoughts on that, we can do it. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. I want to move over now uh, to the Senate. I didn't uh, think this was real. I talked about some of the potential border security negotiation items uh, last week on the program and the week prior. But I didn't think this was going to be an official deal. I didn't think this was going to be something that was, was legitimate. But here it is. The bipartisan sellout of America as a sovereign nation... Is, has been put forth by Chuck Schumer. And, and, and by the way, it, it's important to note, Democrats, yes, have the majority in the Senate by one. Well, 251-49, but I mean, you know, if, if there was one switch, it would be 50-50. Um, they do have a very slim majority, but they cannot do anything regarding comprehensive immigration reform or border security reform or anything else without the willing complicity of of the Republicans. And this is where I get so disgusted and so frustrated. The Chuck Schumer and James Lankford, Senator from Oklahoma, plan. This border deal includes the following. Increase green cards by 50,000 per year. Work permits for adult children of H-1B visa holders. Immediate work permits to every illegal alien who is released from custody. In other words, when they pour across the border and get greeted by their Walmart greeter, welcome into the United States, um, and enjoy your stay, they automatically get a uh, uh, work permit. Number four, taxpayer-funded lawyers to represent certain mentally incompetent aliens and uh, unaccompanied children. You get to pay for their lawyers to let them stay here. 5,000 migrants per day allowed into the U.S. That's 150,000 a month if you're scoring at home. 
and restricting parole for those who enter without authorization between ports of entry. In other words, um, giving them a better chance to stay if they do not come through an official port of entry claiming asylum, but they sneak into the country anyway and then claim asylum, restricting parole for them. This is the Schumer-Lankford deal that is being put forth. The only possible good news that I have for this is that the Speaker of the House, who has to uh, bring this to his chamber as well, Mike Johnson, responded to it on Twitter with the words, absolutely not. That's it. Absolutely not. So that's the only good news to come from that story. But the reality is, there are all kinds of Republicans pressuring him to say you're going to have to absolutely say yes because you're not going to get a better deal. Senate Republicans are telling Speaker Mike Johnson, no, really, seriously, take the border deal. Minority Whip John Thune from South Dakota said this is a unique moment in time. It's an opportunity to get some conservative border policy. Wait, what? How on earth is anything that I just read to you conservative border policy? How is it national security border policy? Republican senators said yesterday that they see only worse opportunities ahead to get a border bill that can pass, given that Democrats are now considering major changes to asylum policy. I'll believe that when I see it. New expulsion authorities. I'll believe that when I see it and perhaps setting limits on presidential parole authority. Again, proof is in the pudding, not in the, in the talking. If Republicans try to wait for a better deal after November's election, senators say they could end up with GOP control over Congress, and they could end up with the White House. But the Democrats then would be in no mood to deal on the issue. And so none of these things that they're considering now would ever be able to go through later anyway. This is the best deal you can get, so you must take it. And this, my friends, is where I lose patience. This is where I lose patience with the Republican Party. This is where I lose patience with the Uniparty. They continue to try to gaslight us into thinking there's nothing we can do to stop the invasion, so we might as well embrace it and get what little scraps they can throw at us along the way. As if we're that stupid. Take what you can get now because a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We're giving you some some some, some things now that make it a little bit better. And um, that's the best you're going to get because you can't count on getting anything better if uh, even if you win the elections in, in uh, November of 2024. Thune said there's absolutely no way that we could get the kind of border policy that's been talked about right now with a Republican majority in the Senate unless we get a 60-vote majority, which isn't going to happen. There aren't many Democrats that are going to be available. This is a unique moment in time. It's an opportunity to get some conservative border policy. He described the current situation at the southern border as a national security emergency. If Republicans slam the door on an immigration deal, some in the GOP Senate worry that won't exactly jive with the message that the border is a five-alarm fire. John Thune goes straight to freaking border hell. I am sick and tired of our Republican conservative leadership bending the knee to to the Democrats who literally set the fire. 
I'm tired of them saying, okay, 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 we'll do it your way. Their way started the fire. You don't get them. You don't let them dictate the terms on how the fire is disposed of. You don't put it out with kerosene. And that's exactly what this would be. Trying to tell Republicans and Republican voters to support a deal like that is literally like just saying, hey, welcome to, you know, um, uh, a Mexica, the combination of America and Mexico, because Mexico, and it's not that they're all Mexicans, as we know, they're coming from around the world, but using Mexico as the land bridge to get in here, Mexico would essentially be annexing the United States. Republicans contend that the domestic national security risks for surging migration are just as important as foreign aid. They are more important than foreign aid, you freaks! Over the past two months, the argument has become a reason the GOP won't move forward on Ukraine aid, compelling reluctant Democrats to the table in a bid to shake loose Biden's $100 billion-plus national security spending proposal. Once again, it is not about the foreign aid, and it sure as hell is not about costs at the border. It's about policy at the border. I am so frustrated and so livid over this. We need to talk about it together. Jack Windsor and I will talk about it, along with what's going on in Columbus, along with what's going on uh, across our state, a couple of different issues to get into. So that's coming up. The answer. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right. we <clears throat> Excuse me. We do continue now at 935. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420, The Answer. Don't forget, we got Dr. Pierre Corey coming up at 1010, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb at 1035. And now let's welcome Dr. Jack Windsor from the Ohio Press Network. He's the uh, founder and the editor-in-chief of the Ohio Press Network. He is also... Uh, a state house correspondent for us, and he's uh, still hosting radio shows down there for Salem's The Answer Station in uh, Columbus. Jack Windsor, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Bob, I'm super fantastic. You thank, thank you for dialing me up today, giving me a chance to chat with you. I always appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm sure you were heartbroken on on uh, Monday night uh, after the Iowa caucuses wrapped, and um, your guy dropped. Uh, he finished fourth. <laughs> Eight percent was a reasonable thing to do, certainly. But I think his mission had been accomplished. He uh, his mission, uh, in in my view, was to provide cover for President Trump to make sure that he uh, took out as many of his opponents as he could before saying, "Okay, now it's me and Trump." Last night they had a big hug fest, and uh, the crowd loved it. VP, VP, VP is the cry. So, Jack Windsor, give me two things. Number one, how do you feel about Vivek? I know that was your guy. Uh, dropping out, and number two, what do you think of the sound of Trump Ramaswamy twenty twenty four? That's a big bumper sticker. I'll answer the second. That's part exactly first. what I said on I'm, Facebook last night. I said I that's, that's a large bumper said. sticker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, touche there. Uh, well, look, I, I don't know that Vivek was necessarily my guy, and and but I hear you. Um, I appreciated his directness. Some people would say he was borderline arrogant. I say if you can back it up, it's not arrogant. To me, um, I think he did the responsible thing. There's no path forward for him to win. He dropped out. He threw a support surprise. Um, was that the plan all along? I don't know. I know the Venn diagrams, if you were to look at them, uh, there's a heck of a lot of overlap between Trump people who supported Ramaswamy and just straight-up Trump people, right? So I don't know if that 8% could have been 20 or 30%. Nonetheless, it was the right thing to do. And I think it should be a signal, by the way, I get that Ron DeSantis punched his ticket out of Iowa, 
Um, but to where? Where does he go next? Uh, he's not going to win New Hampshire, I don't think. And uh, Nikki Haley's going to give Trump a little bit there. But then she's going to go, what, eventually two caucuses later or two primaries later, she's going to go back to her home state and get demolished and then eventually have to drop, I think. So um, I think Vivek did what other people should do, which is uh, drop and coalesce around this, this candidate who is Donald J. Trump. Yeah, that was my big question yesterday, and it remains one today, and we're going to take calls on that <clears throat> that very question. Um, do you hear any Haley, DeSantis, the few that there were, Christie or Vivek supporters, any of them have ever said they would not support Donald Trump if Trump wins, wins the nomination? I mean, if they're Marxists, and they, by golly, there are Marxists in the Republican Party. You only have to look in Ohio to see that. Um you know, I, I don't think so. I think when push comes to shove, listen, 69% of Americans believe this country is going in the wrong direction. And unless you're smoking Hunter's crack, um, you've got to vote uh, for the Republicans. So, no, I, I think that uh, I think you see stuff in the primary that you don't see in the general. And there are people who, by the way, I've talked to who are maybe more libertarian and say, I will not pull the lever for Trump. Well, OK, but come November, that person will. And I think that's uh, I think that's part and parcel with the rest of these campaigns. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that because I haven't heard them either. I hear people hand-wringing and saying, oh, these people are never-Trumpers. If you supported DeSantis or Haley, that you're a never-Trumper, and that is just absolute uh, crap uh, because DeSantis was my first choice. But as I have always said, everybody on that initial debate, I was Doug Burgum or Chris Christie. I don't care. Issa Hutchinson, I would vote for him, and I would campaign for him if they somehow won the nomination. Um, yeah, because we have to stop the Democrats. We absolutely must get rid of them. So I, I, that's how I feel. And you know, anybody who says, yeah. well, "How can you go from DeSantis to Trump?" very easily, because Trump could be a very, in fact, will be a very good candidate and could win. I'm a little worried about the a few of the issues in the general that are going to come up, including if he is convicted of any of the 91 felony charges he's facing, as as to whether or not that harms him with moderate voters. Yeah, I'm worried about it, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to support him. I'm going to support whoever wins that nomination i had a first choice i have a second choice and if my second choice becomes the guy then guess what i'm all in and that's what i think all of us are going to be well let me walk my statement back then with a little bit of a qualifier and i may have heard it the wrong way the first time i don't think any of those candidates are going to come out publicly and say trump's not the guy here's what i would uh, point uh, listeners to and i've been talking about it all week we'll talk about it in the days and weeks ahead down here on the radio and i'm sure we'll write about it but molly ball wrote an article in time I believe it was February 2021, and she lays bare for everyone to see the cabal that operated in 2020 to make sure that Joe Biden was elected. And I'm telling you, there are rhinos in that cabal. So do I think that they're going to throw all in for Trump? No, I don't. Which to me, and this is, you know, you kind of play Russian roulette with, you know, prospective vice presidential nominees. I wondered, does Donald Trump go so far and pick somebody like Nikki Haley, who might bode well in the suburbs, who might bode well with college-educated Republicans and, you know, big war machine lovers on, in the Republican Party or country club Republicans, um, maybe. And you know what would happen? It would force rhinos to pick a side. Uh, instead of, you know, kind of being off and hidden in the shrubs, they'd have to come out. And uh, that would be a really cool way to divide the cabal. But I just don't know if you can get that stink off of you. Um, because I, I believe that she is uh, captured by the D.C. insiders and, and special interests. 
I do too. I feel the very, very same way about it. And, and I don't want to feel that way, but it's just what's presenting itself to me. And I think it's observationally, it's a, it's a reality. So that's a, that's a fair, that's a fair argument. We're talking to Jack Windsor. He is the, um, founder and editor in chief of the Ohio Press Network. Jack, let's go to Columbus now, which is where you're doing radio uh, for Bruce every day. <clears throat> and you are uh, dialed in as well as anybody in media, as far as I'm concerned. I didn't know. I, I knew about Olentangy. I knew about a number of smaller school districts, even larger suburban school districts, but not one of the largest school districts in the state, Columbus City Schools, doing this until now. Columbus City Schools have a new practice or mandate in place in which all staffers, teachers, uh, faculty, uh, counselors, and so forth have to call kids whatever the living hell the kids tell them they want to be called, uh, alternate names, alternate pronouns, and the parents never have to be notified of this. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so as is the case, we've done investigative work involving some of Ohio's larger school districts, and what we discovered there is something similar here, and that is these policies are vague, and eventually there's a hard stop where a parent might have a question like, well, what if that does happen? What next? And the school is rather ambiguous in how they respond to that question. So, for example... In the event with uh, Columbus City Schools, uh, um, there's a parental group, uh, I believe it's Parents Defending Education, and um, they uncovered a policy in Columbus City Schools that says exactly what you said. Staffers have to call a student by his or her preferred pronoun. Um, And so the the issue then becomes, what happens? Do parents get involved? Are they noted? Are they notified? And the school says, well, yeah, we notify the parents, but here's where it gets a little tricky. Uh, The policy reads something uh, to the effect of, in the event that there is conflict between what the student wants and what the parent wants, um, they're they're supposed to reach a mutually agreeable solution. Um, And and that is, I think, the part that is concerning. As a parent, I am not going to co-opt my right to direct the upbringing and education of my child with the school district that can't tell a biological female from a biological male and give that school district the power. And that seems to be the issue here that the policy is slouching toward. Now, the person who wrote the article goes even further and says, well, it's intentionally written like that because that gives the school the permission to do the nefarious things that parents are worried about, which is keep stuff from students, or excuse me, keep uh, students' goings on from parents in the event that there is a conflict. We uncovered here in central Ohio uh, about a year and a half ago that school districts have gone so far to say, look, it could be in the best interest of the child to keep that information from parents, particularly if the parents are not supportive of the gender affirming, uh, you know, care or whatever uh, involving their student. Um, So you kind of know that it's going on. uh, But this report and we're going to talk about it today on air. This proves kind of what we thought all along, which is that school districts are, are quite fine trying to. Um, gender transition our kids, even without our consent sometimes. You, you know what's, what's hilarious about it, Jack, is the hypocrisy of those people on that side of, I think, just the political ideological spectrum <clears throat> telling us that we who supported the SAFE Act were trying to take parents' rights away from, uh, from deciding what, you know, what, what is best for their kids and giving the power to the government. And yet, and yet they do things like this in which they are saying parents don't have a say. Don't even tell mom and dad. Let that child, uh, you know, uh, do what he wants to do or she wants to do to change their identity to all of their friends and, and, uh, and to school members. Affirm that with this new policy, but don't tell the parents. That hypocrisy is one of the most frustrating things, I think, about all of it. 
Yeah, and, you know, I always make two points here. Uh, parental rights uh, don't include abuse. And so there are things that qualify uh, as abuse that parents don't have a right to do. I tend to view uh, lopping off sex organs and pumping their bodies full of drugs that they're not hardwired to receive. I view that as abuse, particularly when you think about the social contagion, the political and peer pressure that our students are under. It's, it's, it's insane to me. Um, but, you know, the other issue is um, exactly what you said. Uh, parents have a right to know. Think about this. This is how important and critical in, in puberty or adolescence when this is going on. How important is it for a kid to know, hey, my family's here. My foundation's here. They're talking to me. They're working through this with me. Instead, we're removing that from the household and putting it into the hands of government school. Bob, that's dangerous. That's scary to me. And it's certainly not something that I would ever support. Um, and I think it's something that, by the way, I think parents need to wake up to. I think there are a lot of parents who go, ah, my kid's never going to do that. Well, we wrote a story about a year ago where there was a, a teenage girl, I want to say she was 13, and, uh, you know, she was going through what, what, what teens go through, which is hormone changes. Mm-hmm. Well, th- she started to gender transition at school. The parents were never notified, and there were, th- there were some outbursts. There was some, like, splintering of her personality that parents should have known about. They didn't know. They weren't notified. The only time they were notified is when they received a call, come get your daughter, she's suicidal. And so this went on for months. Um, that, to me, is a big drop, right? Like, that is a big issue. And this type of stuff allows that to happen. And, by the way, whatever happened to mandatory reporters, <laughs> if there are things that are going on that involve your kids' safety and health and well-being, aren't teachers and educators required to report that to parents and law enforcement? Yeah, well, of course, that's only if they show up with a bruise or something that is unexplained. You know, they have to report that. But if there's a bruise on their uh, on their on their their you know psychological health, uh, which isn't as visible, but if you get that from talking to them, absolutely, it ought to be reportable, just like any uh, any physical uh, potential physical abuse that might be being shown. So you know, you're exactly right. And, and I'm looking at this um, story about the Columbus, uh, and, I, and I mentioned that it's the one of the largest school districts in the state, obviously. Um, it says here that eight, uh, an analysis released in February determined this February of last year, of course, that eight of the largest school districts in the U.S. allow students to request use of alternate names and pronouns without parental consent. The finding t- contradict the poll that found 74% of U.S. voters felt schools should not be able to help students change their gender identity without, the, without involving their parents. Um, and that is, uh, again, uh, it, it's a terrifying prospect because of the anecdotal story you just told. Um, of the one individual, come get your kid, she's suicidal. Well, that's the real problem here. This is why it's so crucial for Columbus to reverse this and every other district that's doing this, because they are doing this without parental consent until it crosses a line either of suicidality or just full-on uh, conversion into this new identity before the parents can even have a say and get them into psychological therapy uh, to get any assistance. And then what are the parents told if they try? Do you want a, a live daughter or a dead son? Yeah. You know, and, yep. and that's the, that's that, you know, that, that choice that they give them. And then the parents are like, you know, if you had told me about this six months ago when you started filling her head with this stuff or his head with this stuff, or whatever the case might be, we wouldn't be here right now where you'd be saying things like that. We would have automatically started psychological therapy for her or his psychological condition. That's what makes this so egregious. It's very egregious. And, you know, Bob, you and I talk about this all the time. We've talked to people like G. Van Fleet who saw something similar to this. It, look, it's, 
it's cultural Marxism. We're in the middle of a cultural war, and there are nefarious forces. God rest their souls. There's a special place in hell for them. You're not going to change them. But then there are useful idiots, people who really don't understand what's going on. Well, what's going on is that the government, through a quasi-government organization, schools, is really trying to capture our kids and to, to earn their trust and earn their allegiance and to remove uh, the security and safety and instruction from parents and place it in the hands of the government. Um, people need to wake up to that. There's no question about it, Jack, and um, and I'm glad you're shining a spotlight on this uh, down there in Columbus. I hope you uh, blow the the doors off of this when you uh, get on the air today uh, and the rest of this week, because the people of Columbus need to know what is going on, and I'm quite certain that the vast majority of the parents there don't know this is going on, just like uh, they didn't in Olentangy and some of the other districts uh, in central Ohio. Uh, Jack, uh, one more quick one for you before we talk about your night tonight. Um, GOP senators have aligned with Senator Chuck Schumer uh, in trying to convince Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, to go along with their new uh, their new little plan here for, for the border. The Schumer-Lankford border deal increases green cards by 50000 a year, grants immediate work permits to every illegal alien who is allowed to stay here, um, taxpayer-funded lawyers to represent UACs and mentally incompetent aliens, 5,000 migrants per day allowed into the U.S., that's 150000 a month, and restricting parole for those who enter without authorization between ports of entry. This is what the GOP, the best deal they could negotiate with Chuck Schumer, and now they want Mike Johnson to agree to this. Uh, Jack, should we shut down the country if they don't shut down the border? Yes. Yes, oh, when 100%. I say shut down the country, I apologize. I meant to say shut down the government, because that's what yes. Chip Roy is arguing. Shut down the government if yeah. they don't shut down shut the border. Shut it down. Shut, shut it down. Listen, um, I'm, not, I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not a policy expert. Uh, but I believe that there's, there's a need for these elected officials to uphold their constitutional obligation to honor lawfulness. And if what we're going to do is tell the world that you can break the law and come to this country and we're going to reward you, then we really suck. Um, we really don't have a border, and we certainly have no business sending money to Ukraine or worrying about Russia or, dare I say, even worrying about Israel, though I, I think that we should be concerned about the terrorists uh, that are mounting against Israel. But if we can't, we don't have a country. We have a group of people who are coming in and taking our taxpayer dollars. And you know what's going to happen? I'm already seeing it. The same broken mainstream corporate press, you know what they're going to report today? They're going to report today that Donald Trump, when he was in office, allowed his staffers to get surgeries and get health care that essentially was outlawed. But these same buffoons are going to say, well, yeah, we should let these immigrants come in illegally. We should give them rewards for breaking the law. I mean, it's just it's nonsense. And, and Bob, I think the average here's the problem. The average person has thrown their hand up a long time ago and gone, D.C.'s broken. I don't know how to fix it. And obviously, Republicans are there, have no interest in fixing it. It's, it's pretty disappointing. So, yeah, I say shut it down. You know, hey, we all lived, we lived through the lockdown, didn't we? We weren't guaranteed paychecks. Maybe these clowns should not receive paychecks for a period of time. Yeah, and that's not ideal because, you know, when they do shut down the government, things like the VA are underserved uh, and, and so veterans suffer. And, you know, there are a lot of people who, who have negative consequences, you know, heaped upon them through no fault of their own. I don't like it, but I will tell you this. 
if we have to take some short-term pain in order to get a much, much, much needed long-term gain of border and national security, then then I agree, do it, uh, because this cannot go through. I hope, I hope Speaker Johnson sticks to his guns here and does not allow this ridiculous thing being pushed by GOP senators on him to get through his House of Representatives. All right, last thing, uh, Jack Windsor, uh, what's going on in Strongsville tonight? So I will be at the Harvest Saloon tonight, and I will be moderating uh, a debate or a forum, if you will, um, involving two candidates for the House seat there in uh, in that area. I believe it's uh, District 7 for the Ohio State House. It is a seat that was is held by um, Tom Patton, Republican, and uh, it will be uh, Gordon Short, who is a uh, Strongsville city councilman. I think he's Ward 4, um, and I believe he's a CPA and an attorney. And then uh, Mike Davila, who is a, a former state house representative, uh, I believe he served some time with President Trump in Washington D.C. and even going back to uh, the, the Bush administration. So those two are going to duke it out on stage for the benefit of voters who have to decide in just a few short, a couple short months now, I guess, uh, who they're going to vote for in the Republican primary. Well, I think uh, that's a great thing. Uh, I heard about that uh, event happening, and I'm glad to know that the people are going to be able to see these candidates going head-to-head there. Obviously, Tom Patton is a controversial figure as one of the blue uh, 22, who is uh, probably going to end up over uh, running in the Senate or something. But, but, uh, yeah, it's good to know that you're going to be there and be a part of this, and hopefully people who are in that district will come out and listen to the debate between Mr. Short and Mr. Dovilla. Uh, Jack Windsor, great stuff as always, my friend. Thank you for having your finger on the pulse of everything Columbus, everything that's going on at the State House, and uh, we'll catch you. and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. All right, hour number two is underway at six minutes past 10 o'clock. Good Wednesday to you. It is the 17th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. Thanks again to Jack Windsor. Don't forget, coming up in about a half an hour, Dr. Uh, Stanley Goldfarb will join us. He has uh, founded uh, Do No Harm, uh, which is a very extraordinarily important um uh, organization, especially in light of what we just told you they are doing down in Columbus and what I just found out about Maine. There is a bill in Maine, the state of Maine, that would allow the state to take custody of a child away from the child's parents if the child wishes to be chemically castrated, to go on cross-sex hormones, or to uh, have bodily mutilation surgery and the parents won't let them. The state will take the kid away and make sure that that can happen. This is this is extraordinary, which, of course, is why First Do No Harm is of such uh, utter importance. So we're going to talk to Dr. Goldfarb about that coming up. There's another doctor that is in the news right now. You may recall him. His name is Fauci. He's the little elf that uh, I think Vivek Ramaswamy, wasn't it Vivek who said we, no, it was DeSantis who said we should throw that little elf into the Potomac uh, after one of his series of lies on uh, on Capitol Hill uh, about the COVID response. Dr. Anthony Fauci lied. Dr. Anthony Fauci was wrong about uh, six different ways from Sunday. He just did a 14-hour testimony 
It was behind closed doors, but the subcommittee provided an overview of some of the more important points that were covered, uh, and uh, the full transcript is going to be available very soon as well. But some of the takeaways are breathtaking, including that entire imagined, made-up, mythical six foot of social, six feet of social distancing rule. Joining us now to analyze and break down Dr. Fauci's, uh, um, uh, I don't know, list or litany of lies, is Dr. Pierre Corey. He is the author of War on Ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. I feel like a lot of things could have ended the pandemic if we didn't listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci and we had listened to Dr. Pierre Corey. Dr. Corey, it's good to have you on the program. How are you this morning, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So, I mean, we can talk about a number of these things. There are three big whoppers I know that you uh, have got locked and loaded here that you want to talk about lies that we know that he told in his uh, in his deposition testimony. But I, I just want to start with that one because this one has made the rounds already. Uh, when asked who came up with and what the science was behind the six feet of social dis- distancing, Dr. Corey, as if to say that that virus, boy, it's got a it's got a reach, and that reach is five and a half feet. You stay six feet back, and you are going to be just a okay. But you come within within that six feet uh, 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 radius, now you're in trouble. It's going to jump on you. He admitted that essentially that that was that was made up from the start. What do you, what, what's your response to when you when you hear things like that? I mean, it, it's just an example. I mean, we've known this for a while, but it's an example of the policies issued by our health agencies based on illogical or really unsupported by science or directly contradicting the science. And so that was a big admission by Fauci that he sort of didn't have good science for it. And we know it's ludicrous. We knew this virus was aerosol transmitted. It wasn't large droplet predominantly. And yet we were social distancing by six feet. And it led to so many just bizarre behaviors by the American public. Like we would socially distance on a jetway onto a plane, and then you get on the plane and you sit cheek to jowl, right? Like how does that make any sense? <laughs> you know, and or or with masks, right? You have these restaurants who tell you need to need a mask to enter, and then as soon as you sit down, you take it off, and then you eat, chat, and laugh. Um, you know, it, it just the policies were so divorced from the science, and and Fauci looks really bad. I mean, he can't explain why he did certain things, and then he forgets everything else. He Apparently, he forgot over 100 different uh, answers to questions in that testimony. Yeah, and, and, and that's, well, forgot or never knew. Um, you know, I mean, and, and, or, or knew, but, was, but covering it up. I mean, how much, based, based on your experience, Dr. Corey, and your research, how much of what the protocols that were established by the COVID commission under President Trump, including Fauci and Burks and so forth, how much of that was actually based in science versus based in, I don't know, population control? Yeah, well, it was based in science. The problem is science has been captured and corrupt. Uh, I mean, for instance, the science for remdesivir, if you look at trials conducted by independent investigators that are not employed by pharma, they show a net trend to increase mortality. The pharma trials somehow show that it has some efficacy. Um, and they're manipulated trials. We knew that from the beginning. That first trial that sent Fauci into the Oval Office about, you know, saying this is a game changer, it was r- ludicrous. They manipulated that trial. We could see that they did that in the journal. And yet, you know, that gets upheld as the science. Well, that's exactly right, and that, that's kind of what I mean. You know, we were told, don't question the science. This is science. Science tells us that, you know, the masks work. Science tell, tells us uh, that the six-foot uh, social distancing works. 
and and what you just said about aerosol versus uh, versus large droplets and so forth. And the fact and how how many months did they have us leaving our Amazon packages out on the porch for twenty four hours so that the the COVID that lives on the boxes can can dissipate. Um, all, all of that stuff, we were told if I questioned that, I was blocked on, on, on uh, Facebook. I was blocked on Twitter. If you put anything out there, especially as a renowned physician like yourself, you're guilty of disseminating misinformation that is a cause uh, for alarm uh, when it comes to public health. They told us all of these things that we couldn't question the science. Well, that's the thing. They ended science in COVID because science is literally... You know, the, the sharing of data, the competing hypotheses, you know, you see what, what, what has the most uh, relevant uh, data. And, but you, you, you really want to contrast opinions and conclusions. You want experts to debate. And suddenly, all debate was shut down. All discussion was shut down. I mean, the, the most ludicrous is when Google or YouTube, they suddenly put in their guidelines, you cannot discuss ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. We have a global pandemic, and we have a communication system where doctors can share insights and results and experiences, and we're not allowed to discuss that. And it's the most important you know, uh, issue in our public health at that time. I mean, the, the censorship, uh, and, then, and then this immediate scientific consensus, which was almost in every circumstance a rushed consensus based on incomplete or fraudulent information. It's the biggest fraud I've seen take place on a global level because this extended to almost every country on Earth. All of this manipulated and fraudulent scientific consensus. Yeah, and uh, and and that's the the most bizarre thing. I mean, is there such a thing as uh, scientific consensus? Because as he's pointed out, it's sharing information, but it's also, I mean, I've always been taught that science essentially craves it yearns being challenged by other science. That's exactly it, it, it. Never really ends, other than the law of gravity and a couple of things that are quite obvious. Um, I mean, consensus doesn't mean that it's proof. No, consensus is always evolving. We always learn more and tweak. And even though something is true, you can also find out that certain things are then better and then it advances. And so you always want to have a discussion and, and constant uh, experimentation, um, but they would not allow that here. And, and, and by the way, consensus, even if let's say there was a true consensus, that usually takes years to arrive at. These consensuses were being arrived at in days to weeks. And then they were continuously being reversed, which I'm not surprised at because you come to a rush judgment, you find that the data uh, actually does not support that, right? You, you've seen all the uh, the demonstrations of the vaccines are 95% effective. They're 70% effective. They're 50, they're 40, you know, then, oh, they prevent hospitalization and death. I mean, I mean it's just ludicrous how easily it was to, to overturn these supposed consensuses. And, and those consensuses, and this is what I'm most troubled by, is when those agencies spoke in COVID, you immediately had the entire world's media trumpeting and championing and blaring those consensuses to every human on earth. And I, I mean, I've never seen something so ludicrous. And most of the population had an implicit faith and trust, not only in the media sources, but in those agencies. And that was really troubling for me to watch because I watched a good portion of the world listening to list, literally lies, lies, fraud. And, and they were following fraudulent edicts, which unfortunately led to catastrophic consequences. I mean, excess mortality since the onset of the jab campaign has been rippling across the road, massive increases in excess mortality. And, you know, people, way more people uh, died unnecessarily than, than should have. And so much death and, and misery and destruction could have been prevented. And 
you know, the, the way I look at the world being run, I mean, there's immense powers, and they can do whatever they want. They can get us to believe whatever they want us to believe and get us to do whatever they want us to do. And it's it's a really sad state of affairs. It is all of those things. We're talking with Dr. Pierre Corey, author of War on Ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, we, you know, how much of the derision that was aimed at ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine um, was engineered and directed by big pharma to make sure that people knew that those things were bad one is a horse dewormer the other one is going to have other all all kinds of other catastrophic catastrophic effects and would not uh, uh, stop you from getting the virus and so forth how much of it was directed by big pharma and how much of it was just misrepresentation or clumsy rollout of those opportunities by the government uh, largely and uh, and and by those who uh, actually pushed and promoted ivermectin but didn't know how to sell it. Well, this is how I characterize it. My book is essentially centered on an article called The Disinformation Playbook. Uh, it's written by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And in that article, they detail the five tactics that industries deploy when science emerges that is inconvenient to their interests. The pharmaceutical industry is the most skilled um, practitioner of disinformation playbook tactics. And they're very clearly defined, and I basically detail in my book how they used every single tactic to destroy the evidence of efficacy of ivermectin, including fraudulent trials, manipulation of media, uh, co-option of third-party agencies and groups, to all to, to try to suppress the evidence of efficacy. Now, I and so mine is really a case study in how they do this, and that's why I think it's important that people read the book, because disinformation is being practiced not just by the pharmaceutical industry, but many industries right now. And you need to learn how to spot it, what their tactics are, because we're really being drowned, we're drowned in lies from any number of industries. And, you know, I wrote the book, The War on Ivermectin, but like you pointed out, one of my colleagues could have written the book, The War on Hydroxychloroquine, Mm -hmm. because they use the same tactics, same results uh, as what happened to Ivermectin. So it was always a pharmaceutical global disinformation campaign. And, you know, they have such immense power. I mean, they literally run big international health organizations like the WHO. They, they're the biggest advertiser of media, so you can't have any, you know, media personality talk the truth about certain things that are inconvenient to their advertisers. And it, it, it's scary how much power they hold. It, Yeah, it's terrifying. And, and in fact, I want to ask you about... Um vaccine injuries now because we were told what what they did to ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine which is you know try to oversell the dangers of these things which you know were just was obviously as i said directed by think big pharma and, and the government but they didn't say squat about the shots they didn't let you know anything about any of the you know, myocarditis, pericarditis, palsy, uh, uh, blood clots, all the different things, and, and, and many, many others, uh, uh, vaccine injuries and adverse events, all they told us was that it was safe and effective. Every single campaign was safe and effective, not one thing. Isn't that denying the people their right to informed consent before they take one of these uh, shots into their bodies? There's no question. There was no informed consent here because there was all data, all all that negative data was being uh, suppressed. I mean, that's a, the safe and effective was the world's biggest uh, propaganda campaign I've ever seen. And we now know, right, from the Twitter files, that literally every agency of our government 
was using and influencing social media to censor any negativity uh, about the vaccines, any adverse reports. Even if true, the social media uh, companies are being told to remove them from social media. So you had this massive propaganda and censorship campaign. And by the way, those are disinformation tactics. And so, you know, I want to tell you that the vaccine disinformation campaign is the mirror image of ivermectin. Whereas in one, it wanted to extol the virtues and, and promote its, you know, incredible safety and efficacy. And the others, they wanted to discredit as, as ineffective and harmful. And, and it, 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 again, it was relentless propaganda and censorship. This, what COVID was, was a war of information. And those who control the information sources, uh, literally, they won in, in terms of, yeah. uh, in terms of profits, right? If you look at the, the global profits of the pharmaceutical industry through COVID, you know, they had to put down ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because it threatened the entire vaccine campaign. It threatened the profits of their pipeline drugs like remdesivir, Paxlovid, and Molnupiravir. So yep. this was like one of the biggest cash, you know, profit opportunities for a criminal industry. And what do they do? They do what they do, which is commit crimes. Uh, with impunity. So people listening to us right now, Dr. Uh, Pierre Corey, author of War on Ivermectin, the medicine that saved millions and, and could have ended the pandemic. People listening to us right now might be going, okay, you know, what we're, we're a little late to the party here. It's over now. COVID is over now. Why are we dwelling on this stuff? To them, I say, with fresh warnings from the World Health Organization that an unknown, quote, disease X, could result in 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus that was COVID-19. We need to be thinking about what the next pandemic looks like and what the next protocols look like. What can you tell us? Do you know anything about what the uh, World Health Organization, they're doing this at the World Economic Forum right now, uh, yep. what, they're, what yep. they're planning with disease X? Well, this is, again, they're starting with fear-mongering, right? The, mm-hmm. the dissemination of fear makes everyone much more compliant and much more reliant and willing to listen to experts. The problem is, I do not think it's going to work this time. You know, whatever that next pandemic is, and we don't have really any information, this is actually all conjecture, and I think it's just to sow uncertainty and fear. Um, but I do believe another pandemic will come. I mean, if you look at how successful the last one was for, for numerous powers, um, why not repeat it? It was an excellent business and and uh, power uh, acquisition model, and so I, I think they can't help themselves. However, again, not to keep you know uh, you know uh, promoting my book, but it, I think what's in my book, many people have learned, and so the tricks that they used in COVID, I don't think will work if they try to do another mass mandated mandatory global vaccination campaign of a barely tested vaccine. It's not going to work. I mean, look at the boosters, right? We have less than 10% uptake in this country. Most of the American public has quietly, some of us more vocally, figured out that these vaccines are lethal and toxic and they're staying away. So I, I don't think the stuff that they pulled is going to work. It's certainly not going to work as many uh, on, on as many people as they do now. Well, but you're right about the fear-mongering from the beginning because, again, the, 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 the number that comes out, <clears throat> excuse me, the most important uh, piece of information in this campaign that has come out already from the World Economic Forum is the 20 times thing. 20 times more fatalities. How many people were killed by, by COVID-19? The reality notwithstanding, uh, you know, the, the, the made-up number. Uh, but 20 times that, oh my gosh, that will shock the uninformed and people who are terrified and those who do, you know, who, who maybe have been on the fence about getting boosters but didn't do so. That's going to shock them into saying, i got to get a jump on this right now. There's no question. 
And uh, that 20 times mortality, I got to tell you, so if you look at my organization, the FLCCC, right, at flccc.net, since the beginning, we've worked on developing uh, treatment protocols for numerous aspects of COVID, for prevention, early treatment, hospital treatment, long COVID, long back. And I will tell you, through our research over the last few years, we now have 33 um, uh, controlled, uh, 33 interventions, medicine that are broad antivirals, that are highly effective. Um, and I think we're well poised. We can deal with anything. When they say 20 times mortality, not, in, not under my watch, not in my practice. I know how to treat viruses now. I have numerous agents at my disposal, and I, I'm ready for whatever they want to come up with. You send those patients to me, and I'll take care of them. We'll, the FLCC will put out a protocol, prevention and treatment, and they're not going to do this because it's going to be a virus. They need something highly transmissible, um, but we have so many answers for viruses right now. Well, Dr. Corey, uh, I'm so glad to hear that you are out ahead of this and on top of this. Give me that website again, FLCC. FLCCC.net. .net, okay, because I, I did have your other website up, the, the uh, Dr. Uh, Pierre, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, which is K-O-R-Y, for those who want to know, dot .com. They can find you there as well. And, yeah, that's uh, my private practice. That's your private practice. Okay, good. Yep. I just want to make sure. And then, of course, follow Dr. Corey on Twitter at Pierre Corey. Again, it's K-O-R-Y, Pierre Corey. Dr. Corey, thank you for uh, for writing the book. Thank you for correcting the record on what really uh, ivermectin was all about. And uh, like I said, more importantly, getting out in front of what they are going to try to do with the next pandemic and the same fear that they're going to use to try to coax us or coerce us into the same type of behaviors. We appreciate that very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. That's Dr. Pierre Corey. Uh, again, his website, a couple of different websites, flccc.net, flccc.net. Uh, that's where you can uh, learn so much more about this. But they have a huge partnership with some other uh, leading physicians who are telling the truth about the virus, about the uh, protocols, about the lies that Dr. Fauci told, and about what we're going to do with this next one. They're just calling it Disease X. They haven't found a nice, cute name. Enough. Maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough to scare people. I suppose if you're looking at a real information or disinformation campaign based in fear-mongering, calling something Disease X is a good one because people will say they don't even know what to, what to call it. It's so deadly and so dangerous, they don't even know what to call it. It's just Disease X. I can see that being a part of the game. Okay, it's 1026 now. We'll take a time out. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb will join us next to talk about a different kind of medicine, one that is we're going to be talking with Dr. Stanley Goldfarb in a, in a few moments here. Dr. Goldfarb is, um, is going to talk to us about uh, a couple of different things, not the least of which we touched on very briefly yesterday that we need to get a little bit more in depth on. As a matter of fact, I've got a great call from uh, Joanne, I think it was yesterday, when I talked about the CEO of United Airlines committing on a vi- uh, in a video uh, taped uh, interview to making 50% of the pilots that they hire going forward, either women or people of color, said absolutely nothing about the qualifications, being the top, safest pilots, and so on and so forth. Nope, they have to look right, and they have to be the right sex. Uh, that's that's the extent of it. That was uh, just the, the little uh, clip we, we played yesterday. And then we get a call from Joanne who reminded us or told us about the FAA, which has gone even further. The FAA is now actively recruiting individuals to work for them that have, quote, severe intellectual and psychiatric disabilities. All of this 
under the guise of DEI, or DIE as I like to call it, Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity. Their website states, and I quote, Targeted disabilities are those disabilities that the federal government, as a matter of policy, has identified for special emphasis in recruitment and hiring. They include hearing, vision, missing extremities, partial paralysis, complete paralysis, epilepsy, severe intellectual disability, psychiatric disability, and dwarfism, end quote. Now, I'm going to say the obvious here. No one feels anything but compassion for people who are suffering from any of those various disabilities or ailments or infirmities, whatever you want to call them. Nobody is suggesting that these people don't have value. They do. But the question of whether or not they should be employed by the federal government in a position such as working for the FAA, where safety of millions of people every single year is, is you know, it should be of paramount importance. Uh, diversity hiring quotas might not best be the best way to go about ensuring that safety, wouldn't you think? So that's kind of where we are. We're going to talk to Dr. Goldfarb. Let me know when he's ready to go, Seth. Um, oh, Dr. Goldfarb is there, I am told now. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, he's the board chairman of Do No Harm. He has uh, a long prof- uh, career in academic medicine, professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, which is interesting given what's going on there. Dr. Uh, Goldfarb founded uh, Do No Harm after publication of his book, Take Two Aspirin and Call Me By My Pronouns, in a, which is a call to uh, action to eliminate discriminatory practices in healthcare, including elevating diversity above meritocracy and the admission of students to medical school and the hiring of faculty members. It ties right into the pilots and the FAA story, doesn't it? It's all about persons, uh, the safety of uh, persons who are uh, re- relying upon those individuals uh, to provide them with their services. Dr. Goldfarb, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you, sir? Great to be with you. So let's start. I want to talk about do no harm, and I want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, we have a bill that just passed here. It was vetoed, and now it's being overridden, uh, called the SAFE Act. It has to do with protecting kids, which I know do no harm is dedicated to. But I want to start with the FAA, because you have been very, very uh, prominent among the critics of this type of uh, of mentality, uh, where putting people in positions of authority where they may make uh, or may have uh, obligations and responsibilities that lead to the safety or the da- endangerment of people. Um, they've made they've made diversity a priority instead of safety. Can you tell us more? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. And I think the comments that you had uh, a few moments ago really hit the nail on the head. You know, I remember uh, way back when um, uh, NASA was dedicated to putting a man on the moon. And I remember hearing a story about uh, a group that went to visit, and they saw a man who was sweeping the floor. And they asked him what he was doing down at uh, Cape Canaveral. What was his role? And he said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And the point was that Everybody in a really wonderful organization is totally devoted to the success of the organization. So even though you may have individuals who are in positions that are seem to be relatively unimportant, so to speak, nonetheless, everybody plays a role in a great team in producing success. And I think you're absolutely right. There's no reason to deny someone an opportunity to participate in, a, in an activity if they're really fully capable of doing it. But if they're not, if there has to be a compromise, and we have a situation such as 
the safety of, of passengers on a plane, or in our case, for do no harm and the safety of patients, mm-hmm. I think there's a, a different uh, standard that has to be applied. I know that when we consider uh, medical students who have disabilities, the question is, will that disability compromise their ability to care for patients? And if it doesn't, or if you can make a reasonable accommodation to them so that you can allow them to to participate, okay. But I think it's really important whenever we consider positions like in the FAA or in medical school that we remember it's not just the institution and applicant, but it's also in the case of medicine, it's the patient. In the case of the FAA, it's the patient. And their safety has to be uh, the dominant issue. So that's the concern. And to sort of say uh, uh, right at the beginning that diversity is going to be a value that you're going to hold above meritocracy, you're immediately compromising. It's just, you know, logic. It's just, there's no way around that. That's not to say there aren't wonderfully capable people who, you know, have disabilities or of whatever race they are of, but you have to make sure that the people you've picked truly are the best that are available, unrelated to what their race is, unrelated to what their disability is, frankly when it comes to the safety of individuals who rely on the organization to keep them safe. You know, Dr. Goldfarb, um, I, I like to simplify things, sometimes overly so, and uh, that's 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 my fault. But I just, I, I would like anybody that is advancing in the FAA, you know, the idea that we should be prioritizing diversity over qualifications and meritocracy when it comes to the safety of people, if you were being flown through a dangerous storm with lightning crashing all about, do you, do you want the person who graduated in the top 2% of his flight school class or her flight school class or somebody who was in the bottom 10% but looks the right color to, to um, you know, to provide equity in terms of the, you know, the population of, of pilots? Uh, likewise, if, if you have to have, you know, heart transplant surgery or any other kind of surgery for that matter, do you want the very best of the best who graduated medical school at the top of the class to operate you on you, or would you be fine with somebody who scored extraordinarily lower, and we're talking about big numbers lower, but they happen to be a female versus a male or uh, a, a person of a, another marginalized class or group, uh, and, they, and they fit the DEI quota. What do you want when your own life is on the line? Is that oversimplified? No, I think that's quite right. And you have to remember that when this administration came in, uh, and our organization is nonpartisan, but when this administration came into office, they declared, I think, on day one that the entire government was going to be devoted to equity. Yes. And equity means that or individuals are going to end up, everyone's going to end up the same, whether or not they're qualified to end up the same, which is really what we're seeing. You know, this is a manifestation of that mentality. And it's, it's, it's a dangerous one because, you know, to go back to my analogy to the people that were putting a man on the moon, you never know when there's going to be someone in the chain of uh, action that's going to lead to a problem. It may be someone who handles the computers. It may be someone who cleans the, the facility. You never know. And that's why it's important to hire the best people that you can possibly hire for jobs in which safety is an important outcome. Uh, that's that's very well said. Um, we're talking with St- Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. <clears throat> he is the board chairman of Do No Harm. 
and uh, he's uh, he wrote a book called Take Two Aspirin and Call Me By My Pronouns, which leads me to a couple of stories I wanted to get your thoughts on, Dr. Goldfarb. Uh, the first one is here in Ohio, in Columbus, our state capital and uh, one of the largest school districts in the state. Um, we just had this discussion with a reporter down there in Columbus. Um, Columbus City Schools has established a policy in which all teachers and faculty and staff will call students whatever they want to be called, pronoun-wise, or if they change their names or if they refer to themselves as some sort of other entity, and parents are not to be notified. Um, I, I want to know why you think it is that if this is such proper care, and gender-affirming care, of course, is a very, very loaded term, but if it's proper to to treat kids in such a way, why is it so important to keep parents in the dark about that? Yeah, well, our organization, uh, you know, has testified in Ohio uh, about this bill, and I spoke actually in front of the one of the legislators committee, the legislative committees about our bill to help ban so-called DEI mm-hmm. out of uh, higher education in Ohio. No, this is this is terrible. You know, um, parents need to be obviously completely involved in their children's health and their children's development. And this uh, this initiative to keep parents out of it because somehow if parents don't support uh, gender-affirming care, they're in, engaged in some sort of child abuse, is, is sort of crazy. You know, it, it's become truly insane because it is insane that parents should not have a, a deep involvement in their child's development. And in fact, as one of our... Uh, Senior fellows at Do No Harm, Dr. Miriam, Miriam Grossman, has written a wonderful book called uh, Trans Nation um, about in, in helping parents work through these kinds of issues. Points out this this is really a delusion. It's delusional that these children think that they're that they have a, a different gender. Now, our organization is completely devoted to fighting against this in children, and the reason we think we're right and that this is correct is that the science is on our side. And the evidence for that is that there are now five European countries that have severely curtailed any of this activity of medicalizing uh, children uh, into gender change. So they they don't use puberty blockers and they don't use sex hormones and they certainly don't do surgery uh, to change genders in any child unless they're part of a complex research protocol or in very, very unusual cases. And in the United States, this sort of thing is going on in schools, as you mentioned, where children have started down a path of gender transition. And it's all under the real erroneous idea that these children uh, really understand what's what's best for them and that these children don't have severe psychological problems that, in fact, lead them to consider gender transition. Uh, the advocates for it say, well, it's, it's the fact that they haven't gone into gender transition, that's why they have psychological problems. But the evidence of children that do go into gender transition is that they have high suicide rates nonetheless, and that, um, you know, and that uh, their underlying psychological problems, including autism, depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. history of child abuse, and so on, uh, are not resolved by this sort of activity. So the idea that teachers will push students into this without parents' knowledge it borders on the evil, really. Has um, <clears throat> has there ever been another time in medical history that um, a physical bodily 
I know it's, it's triggering to say mutilation, but it, but it is what it is when you cut off healthy organs like breasts or cut off penises and testicles and, and try to fashion some sort of Frankensteinian, uh, you know, body part, uh, amalgamation of things. But, uh, but has there ever been a time when psychological disorders have been treated by physical, surgical uh, means? Dr. Goldfarb? Yeah, there was. There was. And, and someone won a Nobel Prize for it, and that was lobotomy. Lobotomies were used back in the 1920s and the early part of the 20th century as a way of treating severe mental disorders because it was felt that this would lead to, you know, some sort of improvement. And it turns out all it did was produce basically people that were vegetables, lost tremendous cognitive function, and, and many of them had to be institutionalized. And yet there were advocates for it, just like there were advocates for gender transition, who really swore to the public that this was the best thing, that this was effective. And it, it, it took a bunch of bodies to accumulate, if you, if you will, pardon the expression, in order to, um, you know, affirm that, in fact, this was a, a terrible mistake. So medicine is, is quite capable of going down the path of hurting people in the name of uh, thinking that they were helping them by avoiding, you know, careful scientific evaluation. And this is what's going on in the gender the so-called gender-affirming care world right now. They're, they're ignoring the basic scientific information, and they're accepting uh, a trend that really is, is harming lots of children. Dr. Goldfarb, uh, we're talking to Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, if you just turned us on. He is the board chairman of Do No Harm, which is a very important organization that is dedicated to protecting children from experimentation uh, and uh, adolescents uh, with this so-called gender-affirming care <clears throat> Today, I just saw a story this morning as I prepared for my broadcast from uh, the state of Maine. I believe this makes Maine the third state, maybe the second. I know that Washington State has already passed a bill that was similar. California was considering it. I don't know where that stands in their process. So Maine is either no, the I second or have, third. No, I think they have that law. Did they? Yeah, they, they yeah. This, uh, this uh, particular bill authorizes the state to take custody of a child if that child's parents refuse to provide them with the gender-affirming health care that they desire. Now, this, of course, is their language. I don't buy it. It is not gender-affirming health care. But if they refuse parents to provide the chemical castration that comes with puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones, and then, of course, all the way through to the surgeries we're describing, the state will take custody of the child away from the parents and do it themselves. I, I, this can't happen in a free country, I don't think, but here we are. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's being pushed by activists. I, I I won't say that that they're doing this out of ill will. They're doing this out of insanity. That's what they're doing this out of. And, and they're doing it out of uh, avoiding, you know, the scientific data, which our organization keeps going back to, that, you know, if, if you look at the many systematic reviews, which is a very rigorous scientific process that's been done, they fail to show that this kind of treatment does anything for the the psychological and certainly the physical well-being of children. It just doesn't. More harm than good has clearly been observed, and that's why these European countries have turned their usually centralized healthcare systems uh, to prevent this from going on in a random fashion in children the way it's going on in the United States. You know, there are now 22 states that have passed laws prohibiting this kind of uh, 
medicalization of this of gender change in children, and um, Ohio would be the twenty third. Which will and happen? Think, uh, which will happen on the twenty fourth of this month when the Senate overrides the veto of our governor. The House did it on the tenth. The Senate will override him on the twenty fourth, and then ninety days after that, uh, the Safe Act, which does exactly what you just said. It prevents all of the medicalization of these um, uh, of children, these confused kids, uh, from puberty blockers through the cross sex hormones through the surgeries. It will and, be outlawed and, and, in, before before the age of eighteen. And let me say what we um, what we recommend. It's not like we want these children to be abandoned. These children need intense psychological care. That's what they need. They need waiting if they go decide they want to change their gender. They need intense parental involvement. And if people go to our website, donoharmmedicine.org, there's a page there on it that's been organized by January Littlejohn, who's a very well-known parent whose child was they tried to change their child's gender without letting her know about this. We've created a website there where there are many uh, resources that are available for parents that can learn how to deal with this, which kind of psychiatrists that are available who can help their child, children through this. This kind of They're calling this kind of thing conversion therapy, which is absolutely the opposite of what it is. It's, it's pre- trying to prevent people from getting converted. <laughs> It's trying to keep people into their into a normal life that they'll be able to live. And we know that the vast, vast majority of children that express the so-called gender dysphoria, gender confusion, if left alone, will go and live perfectly normal lives. They may become gay, they may be bisexual, whatever it is, but they don't have to go through medications that will damage their reproductive capacity and certainly surgeries which will mutilate them. Dr. Goldfarb, um, speaking of do no harm and do no harm medicine.org, I'll send people to that website too. I'm looking at it right now. Um, that, of course, is the uh, basis of the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, first, do no harm. I have been told, because I quote that on the air all the time whenever I talk about this subject, I have been told that doctors or, or uh, medical students graduating uh, medical school no longer have to take that oath. Uh, and that the Hippocratic Oath, there's not anything that's, quote-unquote, binding or required anywhere. Is that true? Well, you know, it is a um, it is a, a more a tradition than an absolute requirement. Um, almost every uh, medical institution, medical school, has an oath. The, the oaths have been changed over the years to, in, in some cases, they've, they've become sort of ridiculous. Um, the, the famous one at the University of Minnesota had an oath where they started out for the first 10 minutes and talked about the land that they were on had been stolen from indigenous peoples, which, which may or may not have been true, but it's sort of irrelevant to the question of becoming a good physician. Um, so, yeah, they've changed these oaths over the years, and there's no absolute uh, you know, central process that requires them to give a particular oath to the students. Yeah, I know there's not a, a, a requirement. I know it's more ceremonial and traditional, as you say, than binding, but, but it is an oath. And, and when you are a physician or about to become a physician and you do swear to do no harm, cutting off healthy organs is a direct violation of that oath you took, we, even if it was just an oath to yourself or an oath to, uh, you know, between yourself and God. And that's why I'm so well, glad to learn of your organization, because you're reminding people do no harm is the first responsibility of any physician or medical practitioner, right? That's right. You know, and, um, you know, these people are, are doing these procedures on these children. And it's rare. I, I, I grant that surgery is rare, but these drugs are not irreversible at all. The people that have uh, created the guidelines for transgender care have admitted that 
putting children on puberty blockers or, or sex-changing hormones uh, has can have lifelong, often has lifelong uh, complications associated with it, and certainly the surgical procedures are, you know, really uh, an abomination. No question about it, every step of the way. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, thank you so much for coming on. We'll send people again to the website. They can follow you as well there at uh, donoharmmedicine.org, donoharmmedicine.org. Doctor, thank you so much for uh, your work. We appreciate it. Great, thank you. Yeah, and let them read my book also because I go through lots of these issues that we Absolutely. I'll I'll remind people about that, and we'll link to it as well. We'll link to that as well. Take two aspirin and call me by my pronouns. A very, very direct message there. Thank you, Dr. Goldfarb. Thank you very much. Uh, Bye-bye. It is uh, 1057 now. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. That's what it is. That's who we are. It is seven minutes after 11 o'clock. Thanks for being with us. On this Wednesday, it is the 17th morning of the first month, year of our Lord, 2024. We had a good conversation with Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. Prior to that, we had a good conversation with Dr. Pierre Corey. Prior to that, we had a good conversation with Jack Windsor. So let's do uh, some good conversation now with you. 216-901-0945 and 888 I want to share, though, a couple quickies. I just told uh, you the story of Maine and uh, got the comments of Dr. Uh, Goldfarb about that. Do you have any idea how radical that state has become? Maine, in addition to now having a bill before its legislature that would allow the state to take custody of a child away from his parents if those parents refuse to give the child what he wants, if that thing he or she wants is puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, or surgery. The child gets to make the call. The child that isn't old enough to make a decision on getting a tattoo makes the call. The child who isn't old enough to smoke cigarettes makes the call. The child who isn't old enough to buy a beer makes the call. The child who isn't old enough to enter into a contract makes the call. The child who isn't old enough to get married makes the call. The child who is old enough to serve in the military makes the call. The child who is old enough to own a gun. All of these things because they're too irresponsible at a young age to be able to do such really, really important things can make the call as to whether or not they have permanent irreversible damage done to their bodies based on a temporary confusing time around the time of their puberty and in a time when they are being influenced so extraordinarily by radicals who are trying to recruit them into a deviant cult. 
they get to make the call. And if the parents don't go along with it, the state takes the kids away. That's Maine. Well, this is also Maine. Hard-working Maine taxpayers are now being forced to foot the bill for the construction of several apartment buildings. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what are the apartment buildings for? If the apartment buildings are for people like, you know, homeless veterans, well, then you know what? You can raise my taxes a little bit. That's a pretty doggone worthy cause. If that's what you're doing, if you are helping people, specifically people who deserve uh, you know, our assistance, then, you know, we already have subsidized housing. We have Section 8 housing. We have, you know, uh, shelters and so forth. I mean, that's that's just something that a community does. But in Maine, the taxpayers there are in a little bit of a d- different situation. The apartment buildings that they are being forced to pay for, pay for are for illegal immigrants, where they will live rent-free for up to two years. You catch that? This week, Maine officials celebrated the renovation of a former naval air station base where 60 new apartment units in five buildings will go up. Illegal border crossers, illegal migrants will be able to live rent-free, paid for by the hardworking taxpayers for both the construction of the buildings and the uh, upkeep and the rentals. They pay the rent. The uh, illegals do not for at least two years while they await their work permits. News Center Maine reported that the goal is to move migrants out of hotels and shelters and into the stable housing despite being in the U.S. illegally and mooching off of American benefits already for things like food, clothing, medical care, and education. On Monday, dozens of people gathered at Brunswick Landing to celebrate 60 new apartment units going up in five buildings, 24 of them already complete. These units designed to house, quote, asylum seekers, otherwise known as illegal aliens, waiting to receive work permits. The process can often take a while since asylum seekers can't even file for a permit until at least six months after their initial asylum applications. You know where they have really nice apartments for asylum seekers to wait their, uh, for their, their hearings? In freaking Mexico! The remain in Mexico policy that was in effect for four years and was immediately dismantled by the idiot-in-chief. Now taxpayers here have to fund all of these things for these people who broke our laws. Their very first act on American soil was to break a law by stepping on American soil. Maine budgeted $3.5 million to provide these apartments for illegal aliens. The state will also give over $100,000 to illegal immigrants for a year's worth of asylum applications and work authorization assistance. Officials say the legal support will seek to ensure illegal migrants receive work approval as soon as possible so they can begin providing for themselves. I wonder when they get jobs to begin, quote-unquote, providing for themselves, I wonder if they then have to start paying back the rent that they didn't have to pay when they couldn't, quote, provide for themselves. Wouldn't that seem to be reasonable? Most people have to take out loans for things they cannot afford when they cannot provide for themselves. If the government is going to give them loans, even if it's at 0%, they should have to pay them back. 
Maine has seen an uptick in homelessness across the state with over 4,200 residents living on the streets. However, despite this, the state has done nothing to combat the homeless issue and instead put millions of dollars aside to assist illegal aliens who come into the U.S. and take advantage of American profits. That is exactly correct. Now, I already know what some people, when they hear my commentary on this, are thinking. Racist. What's wrong with people who are down on the luck, who are trying to seek a better life for themselves? You just don't like them because they're brown. You don't like them because they're brown and black, and they're coming from other parts of the country that you don't like, that your former president called blank hole nations. You ever wonder what it would be like to live in the reverse culture that we have right now, where everything that we think and are attacked as being racist or bigoted or phobic for was actually the norm, and everybody who thought the other way, who took the other side of these political and cultural and ideological issues, that they were the ones who were attacked for it. Do you ever think about what that would be like? Imagine if the culture was reversed. Let's imagine a country in which all of the media was owned by the right instead of the left. Facebook and Twitter censor and deplatform leftist visitors and commentators and posters. Imagine when you can be fired for supporting gay marriage rather than opposing it. Imagine when you can be fired for saying there are more than two genders rather than being fired for saying there are only two genders. Imagine a culture where no one can criticize Christians as opposed to the culture in which we live, in which everybody can criticize Christians. Imagine living in a culture in which any time a black person is mean to a white person and it's recorded on somebody's smartphone, it leads the local news and can lead to riots and burning and arson. Well, burning and arson, I guess, are the same, but you understand the point. Imagine a culture that was so reversed that we on the right controlled the schools and their curricula. We, conservatives, received all the government handouts and goodies and all of the jobs, too. Imagine if the culture was such that white Europeans were allowed to come here illegally. They're overwhelming conservatives and vote for, uh, they're over, overwhelmingly conservative, I should say, and they vote for right wing candidates. Imagine if a Democrat was president. <clears throat> And both the media and the deep state spent all of their time trying to undermine that president. And that if someone supports that president, he can be assaulted without repercussion. Imagine living in a culture in which Christians can run gay bakers out of business just for fun. You know, like I said, the exact opposite of this culture in which gay people can run Christian bakers out of business just for fun. Imagine living in a culture in which all of the media was pro-white, as opposed to the current media, which is all anti-white. Imagine living in a culture in the United States where all villains in entertainment are black, 
Hispanic, or Muslim, or Jewish, or gay, as opposed to the entertainment industry today in which all of the villains or the doofuses are white males. You ever think about that? Imagine all of this, and then imagine waking up every day angry that you're oppressed and thinking that you are part of the resistance. Because that's how insane the American left is. Everything that I just said to imagine, they live every day. They live every day knowing that the media is owned by the left and that Facebook and Twitter censor and deplatform the right. They wake up every day in a culture and in a country where people can be fired for opposing gay marriage or for saying that there are only two genders or criticizing uh, 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 Christians or, uh, like I said, a white person being mean to a black person caught on a smartphone is grounds for lead news stories, probably statements by politicians, visits by Joe Biden, and, yes, riots in the cities and in the streets. Those people wake up every day in which they control the schools and the curriculum, and they get all the government handouts and goodies and the jobs, too. They wake up every day. We're not white Europeans, but individuals from third world countries all over and moreover from Middle Eastern countries that are not necessarily favorable to the United States come here illegally. They overwhelm. They're overwhelmingly leftist, and they vote for left-wing candidates. They wake up in a country every day and in a culture in which, if there's a Republican president, the media and the deep state do spend all of their time undermining him. And if someone supports that president, they can be assaulted without repercussion. They can even be set up with fake Jussie stories. Gay bakers run Christians out of business for fun. The media is all pro-minority and anti-white. All villains are white. Imagine waking up every day like they do to all of those benefits and then being angry and saying that they're oppressed and that they're part of the resistance of that oppression. I had a friend send me that a couple of days ago, and I read it, and I was like, it's it's uh it's eye opening. It's it's kind of staggering, quite frankly. Imagine if everything were reversed, what this country would look like. If conservative media was mainstream media. All of those things that I just laid out, how how would the left handle it? How would the left handle it? If everything that they believed was was allowed to be attacked, if everything that they believed was allowed, uh, uh, excuse me, was was uh, excoriated and was and was destroyed uh, on in media and in social media, in entertainment, in schools, in business. Imagine if everything that they have right now was reversed and given to the right, given to conservatives, how they would handle it. Because that's what we have to handle every single day. It's amazing we keep our sanity at all. It's amazing we keep our our level headedness. It's amazing that we are able to remain calm and steadfast in our belief that we can save our country. It's amazing that we can think to ourselves, our families, the building blocks of our civilization will remain intact. We will resist all efforts to convert our children into radicals and to teach them to join into cults of various different orders. We will keep them together. 
We will build upon those families in our neighborhoods and in our towns and in our cities and in our regions and in our country. We're going to do that because we have no choice. We fight it every day. It would be very easy for us to give up. It would be very easy for us to say they control it all. What can we do? The only reason this country remains even in its fractured way standing is because we didn't give up and we don't give up. Wonder what they would do if everything was reversed. We run media, we run schools, we run corporations, we run everything. We run the culture, we run the entertainment industry, and everything that they say or think is demonized. Wonder how they would handle that. All right, 216-901-0945, Sally is in Berea. Sally, go right ahead. You're on the air. Hi, Bob. Your program was so jam-packed with issues, it almost took my breath away. But regarding the um, budget bill and what Senators Langford and Schumer are trying to put through, that would allow a continued invasion of our, of our borders and sovereignty and also more privileges and rights for illegal aliens than our own citizens have. And it's time that we say no. If it results in a shutdown, it's unfortunate. But we cannot wait any longer till, oh, maybe we can get a better deal later. Later never comes. We have to take action now and say no. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Sally. I, I agree. I kind of made that point earlier, too. Um, I, you know, I, even with my guest, uh, Jack Windsor, and he agrees, too. Chip Roy is right. Jim Jordan, I don't think, agrees. I asked Jim Jordan if he supported Chip Roy in this effort in which he made a statement about two weeks ago when it was uh, made clear that uh, Johnson was going to cave in on the budget deal. And I said, Chip Roy said that when it comes to the border, shut down the government if they don't shut down the border. Don't give them the budget deal. Let it all get shut down until the border is secured. And that doesn't mean comprehensive immigration reform that allows you know 150,000 illegals to come across now legally a month doesn't allow uh, amnesty and a pathway to citizenship for uh, the 20 plus illegals who are here right now no 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 not comprehensive immigration reform just straight up border security if we don't shut the border down then the country gets shut down by way of its government i agree chip roy's right i'm right sally's right I feel like Congressman Jordan's wrong. I asked him about this about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, and he kind of gave a meandering answer in which he uh, kind of didn't say, yeah, I'm willing to do that. Uh, I'll have him on tomorrow, by the way, and I'll ask him again. Because I'm disgusted by that bill. I'm disgusted by that proposal. I'm disgusted by the fact that uh, Senate Republicans are teaming up with Chuck Schumer to try to force this on conservative Republican uh, House members. I think it's repugnant, and I hope that Mike Johnson sticks to his guns and will not allow this to come to a vote in the United States House. It's a non-starter. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, it's 1134. Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The Answer. Got time for a few more phone phone calls if you want it. 216-901-0945. Or triple eight two eight one eleven ten. But I also want to share this too. This is another story that was shared with me by the same friend who uh, gave me the imagine if the culture was reversed in this country. 
it's a it's a headline story uh, as, uh, addressing why no one goes out to eat in Washington D.C. anymore. And uh, in a December social media, and believe me, I'm bringing it to Ohio for a reason, or in, in a manner of speaking, for a reason. In a December social media post announcing the closing of Pursuit, which is a 10-year-old wine bar and restaurant, um, the owner named Adam Kalinsky said doing business in that city is no longer sustainable. Others shuttered their locations in Washington, D.C. for the same reason. The combined effects of the pandemic, the sputtering economy, the spike in violent crime made it impossible to survive. But others focused on the second-order consequences. The sharpest blow was the December announcement that two of Washington's Major League Sports teams, the Wizards and the Capitals, plan to leave for a more business-friendly environment in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay, well, that's going to be bad for business if you are, uh, you know, uh, a restaurant and, and, or bar or combination thereof in, in that location. That's a big deal. Also, plague of robberies in, in recent years makes people not want to go out to eat, too. Falling foot traffic would be bad enough on its own, but here's the real deal. Washington's restaurants, and and by the way, I could say all those things about Cleveland, too, with the exception of moving the teams, the crime rate, the um, uh, pandemic, which closed a lot of businesses, the inflation, the economy, all of those things are factors, too, in Cleveland. So I can make that same case here, and this is where I'm going to bring it home. Falling foot traffic would be bad enough on its own in Washington and or in Cleveland, But they have also simultaneously faced what didn't have to happen, a huge, sharp rise in labor costs. In November of 2022, the city's liberal voter base there overwhelmingly approved something called Initiative 82, a ballot measure that tripled the base wage for tipped restaurant workers. Tipped workers in most states can be paid a lower wage because their tips bring them up to minimum wage and often much, much more, often two, three times the required minimum wage, right? Well, Initiative 82, which eliminated this system, was opposed by tipped workers who worried that it would destroy an industry that already did work well for them, making two, three times more than the minimum wage would be. They were right. According to Federal Reserve data, full-service restaurant employment in Washington grew roughly 17% in the year before the tipping changes took effect. Since it went into effect, employment has fallen 4%. That's a 21% turnaround. And that's just the start. Because the tipped wage will now continue to rise for the next three years when it meets the regular minimum wage that is increased every year for inflation. An April survey published by the Employment Policies Institute of more than 100 local restaurants in D.C. found that most plan to do what? What would you think? To lay off workers. The labor costs are so high, they're having to fire workers. Half of the business is planned to expand into lower-cost states, in other words, to leave In that case, you know, to Maryland or Virginia, nearly one in three plan to close their locations altogether. To offset costs, hundreds of restaurants have opted to add fees or surcharges to customer checks. Diners are responding the way you would expect. What would you do if you show up at a restaurant, maybe your favorite restaurant, you order what you always order, you know what the cost is going to be, and then you see that it's 20% higher. What's that for? Well, that's a surcharge, and it's a fee because of our increased labor costs. What are you going to do? You're not coming back. Customers paying sharply higher prices or for mandatory surcharges, they're reluctant 
to then want to leave an additional tip for the server. So now the tipped worker who has a higher tipped wage doesn't get any tips at all. And they end up making less than they were the other way. So add all of these things up. What are we saying here? The workers are getting laid off. The ones who stay are making less money. The customers don't want to come back to the restaurants because of the higher prices and the surcharges and fees that are added. And why? Do, how does this impact Ohio? Well, the end of the article impacts Ohio because it says that voters in Arizona, Massachusetts, and in Ohio are going to be asked to eliminate tipped wages this fall. Take note. Washington experiment with lax crime enforcement, Cleveland, and high labor costs have caused a dining disaster. Business owners, restaurant owners, and bar owners are all paying the price in D.C. and in other metropolitan areas where they have done this disastrous, made this disastrous decision, and now Ohio voters are going to be asked to do the same thing. So I ask, what are you going to do? In all seriousness, what are you going to do? Do you want this? Everybody thinks, well, everybody does this. This is what the leftist mantra is. Every worker deserves a living wage. Well, what does living mean? Living how? Living high off the hog with an entry-level service job? No, they don't. That's how capitalism works. It incentivizes you to earn a higher wage by working harder and getting promoted in the field that you're in or to get some experience now and go to a different field in a better place that makes more money. That's how it works. But the left thinks that immediately paying people huge sums of money, including tipped wages, paying them huge sums of money to do menial labor tasks, They think that that's somehow benefiting people. It's not. It's hurting the people who then lose their jobs, and it's hurting the customers who can't afford the products or the goods or the services in those industries. Then what happens to the the business owner? Look, most people know this. Some don't. But most food service establishments, both in served food or grocery, the grocery industry, They operate on razor-thin margins. They don't make a lot of money per sale. Very, very thin. Right? They make up for it in volume, in massive numbers. They have to have a lot of people coming through their doors in order for them to make profits. How do you think that goes for them when fewer people are coming out to eat because of the increased prices on the menu and the surcharges that are being added or the automatic gratuities that are being added, not just to parties of eight or more, but to everybody? What do you think that's going to do? So the business owners who operate on a razor-thin profit margin, but they price their their menu items exactly as they need to be, to be just enough to cover their costs and make some profit without alienating or driving away the customers. It's a very, very tenuous thing. And now they're being driven out. So they're doing it in D.C. All I can say to you is don't let them do it here. I don't know what the name of the ballot initiative might be. I don't know exactly what it will look like. But based on the story, again, coming out of Washington, it, it, it's a disaster.
It's a disaster there, and it will be a disaster here. It'll be a disaster in Cleveland. Business owners will suffer. Diners will suffer. Workers will suffer. Everyone will suffer. When will we ever learn to stop fixing what isn't broken? It has never been broken. The system of starting out at a lower salary or a lower wage, working for tips, and that, that incentivizes good service to make sure that you get better service so that you can get better tips, make sure the diners, diner's experience is, is a good one and so forth. It worked. And then people worked their way up from there, and then they got up to a higher wage, and then a higher wage, and then that, and a higher wage, and then that. Starting people at high wages disincentivizes doing actual work. It disincentivizes a Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.